very exciting. You see the kids there get excited. <clears throat> so um, this week is Valentine's week. Valentine's Day is on Tuesday. And it's a good time to talk about marriage and committed relationships. We know that being in love with someone and celebrating them in your Valentine is special. But many of us know it actually can be fleeting. One's Valentine this year may be only a distant memory the next. However, marriage is different. Being married to someone is a commitment, a God-sustained, lifelong one. That's because God's the one who first instituted marriage, and he's the one who keeps it going. We see this um, in the first book of the Bible, um, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, do we have, Rob, are we good there on the slides there? I think we're, I think we're, we're in the middle. We can get to the front. Sorry. That's all right. Let's, we'll, we'll line up here. There we go. That was our Valentine's Day slide, and then we'll go to our first set of verses. If you want to follow along with me in Genesis chapter 2, I want to just establish this idea that God created marriage and it was his idea. So we say in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, we said, the Lord, God, the Lord God said, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Skipping ahead halfway through verse 20, it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place from the flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she should be called woman. And she was taken out of the man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now Jesus also was asked about this question about marriage, and he actually furthered the idea in the New Testament. He explained a little bit further that not only is God the designer of this commitment, but he gave us a little information about the intended duration of this commitment. We read in Matthew 19, it says, verses 4 through 6, it says, At the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He's quoting here from Genesis 2. And for this reason a man will leave his father and mother be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. So therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So God put it together, and he intended it to be forever. So God designed people to marry and stay married for life, or as it often put in the wedding vows, until death do them part. Jesus saw marriage as a union established by God, for that is as long as they both shall live. So that's very familiar to us. These stories are very familiar to many of us. But I want to do, just go back for a second and just bring your attention to something maybe didn't catch your eye. Back in Genesis chapter 2, there was this thing where God starts creating people, but we also see that he created animals. So starting in verse 19, we read that the Lord had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And I want to talk a little bit about those wild animals and birds in the sky for a second. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. You can imagine these names and how they came up with them. That's a whole sermon for another day. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. So it's interesting. I just want to bring your attention to these animals. Do you know that there are animals that stay together for life? Now, ironically, according to the World Wildlife, World Wildlife Foundation, only 5% of mammals are monogamous. So we're actually doing a lot better at 50%. I just want to encourage you, okay? <laughs> But I think there's a few things I just want to highlight. It's the first one I want to highlight is the barn owls. So the barn owls here, okay, very cute, right? Once they find their mate, they're set for life, and they work together to raise a family. The next one, a mate for life, 
These guys are called the macaroni penguins. Now they're together for life and according to research throughout their lives, whenever they see each other, their mate, they get like all ecstatic. Okay? Wouldn't that be wonderful to have that every day, right? In your relationship. Some of us are more Valentine's Day than we think of these guys, the next ones, the swans, right? The swans are committed to each other for life and are known to be quite romantic. In fact, even so, researchers say not only do they mate for life, but if their mate is lost, the surviving mate will go through a grieving process just like we do. Now, the next two are ones that I want to bring to your attention both here and then at the, at the end of our time. Beavers. Beavers remain faithful to each other for life once a relationship is established between them, and they work together to stay together. You often see them side by side. And the last one I can't miss out today, of course. No surprise, right? Bald eagles are devoted to each other for life. Now, what's interesting is one way that they demonstrate this is that the male bald eagles will co-parent the young and help keep their eggs warm and feeding the chicks once they've hatched. So they, too, are in it together. Now, obviously, animals are interesting, but today we're going to look at this thing called marriage among people. We will see how God created marriage and designed it to be different, because we're in a series called Be Different. And much of what we will see and hear in our culture today isn't really the way that God designed it. So we want to be able to make that contrast between those two. And we're going to learn more about God's designs to see important, not just that they're different, but as Pastor Brian encouraged us last week, that different is better. Different is better. In fact, that's what he said last week. He kicked off the sermon series about being different. He shared how normal isn't working and how different is better. We looked at Psalm 127 together and learned how to acknowledge God and have him part of our everyday life. We saw how God influence our daily lives makes us different, but more importantly, us better as a result. We were encouraged to grow in God's wisdom. Why? To have the best possible life we can. And we're going to build on that from today, for today. So Pastor Brian last week mentioned how in the upcoming weeks we're going to be looking at what it means to be different in our marriages. That's today. We're going to be different in how we raise our families. That's coming up. And lastly, different in our friendships. Again, today we're focused on marriage. We're going to see how normal isn't working in marriage and how having a Christ-centered marriage not only makes our marriage different but better. So how is normal not working in marriages? Okay. Last week, Pastor Brian shared a sad story. He shared how the first couple he ever married is no longer married. How sad. But for us, what I want to do is ask a sensitive question. I'm not looking for hands to be raised, but I'm going to ask a very easy question here, and it's a very sad one, is how many of us are directly connected to a failed marriage? Be it ourselves, our parents, our siblings, our children. If you have to extend to friends and coworkers, there's not one of us here today who hasn't been affected in a sad and an adverse way through these failed marriages. When marriage fails, the whole family falls apart. When the family fails, the whole society falls apart. And when society suffers, we see it every day in our headlines. So this is important. This affects us all. In fact, let me share a little sad statistics. Some sad statistics bear this out. Does anybody, and this one maybe we'll open it up for, for guesses from the audience. We're not going to guess, like, you know how you have the Super Bowl pools, we're going to say, okay, you know, where's the first touchdown going to be scored by which person, okay? But here, this is a sad one. What is the average duration of a marriage that ends in divorce? Anybody know? Number of years. Take a, take a guess. Eight. Eight years. Eight years. So I, I want us to be both encouraged and discouraged by that, right? The divorce rate we know is around 50%. 
And ironically, in the world, we talked about kind of Turkey this morning, other countries, America is the third highest divorce rate in the world. Of course, most of you are thinking, all right, who's number one and number two? So I'll tell you. Maldives is the highest, and Belarus is number two. So um, I don't think those are competitions we want to shoot for. In fact, in 2020, the last year that we have the statistics on, on divorce, there was over 630,000 divorces in America. So it's very normal for us to not only connect with divorce, but feel its effects. And so when we look at marriage and we say, why do we want to be different? I hope there's a sort of underpinning now to what we're trying to explain. Now, ironically, um, when you look at the research that's done of why married couples end up in divorce, the number one reason is very broad, okay? It's called incompatibility. And it means that people get married, and what they think is their spouse is gonna be perfect. A perfect fit for them, hand in glove. And that things are gonna go wonderful for the rest of their lives. However, after you get married, certain things come up. And you see things about values, viewpoints, habits, patterns of thinking, talking, acting. And these are hard to work through. Differences are hard to work through. So when we talk about being different, it's okay to be different as individuals in a relationship, in a close relationship, especially marriage. But the question is, is that how can you be different together? Well, that's what we're going to look at. Not just individual differences, but how do we choose something more than normal for our marriages? How do we choose marriages that don't just survive, but thrive? So we're going to look together at three ways that Christian marriage is different than a normal marriage. The first way Christian marriage is different than normal marriage is in its purpose. It is a purpose that has Christ at the center of the marriage. God designed marriage with a purpose to provide the ability for the couple to pursue God together. God intended marriage to be between a husband and wife who are united in a common faith and have a common goal to grow in him and to be like him in their daily lives. So if one person is starting to become like Christ and another person is starting to become Christ, then they're going to be naturally more unified in their relationship. So there are couples who have goals in their marriage, and goals are good things, but most couples, normal couples, we'll just say, don't have their goal about keeping Christ at the center of their marriage. So where do we get this idea? It, it's littered throughout the scriptures. There's just one scripture I want to bring to kind of bring the most attention to it because it's applicable for all of us, and not just those of us who are married, but those of us who have a close relationship with one another. And it comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. If you want to take a look at that with me, it says, Just then, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So despite our imperfections, in Christian marriage that's different, God created a husband and wife to basically steer each other in the direction of God. So I just want to, um, I didn't get permission for this, so I will ask apologies later. I did not get permission from my wife to share a few examples. But since they're all positive examples in this case, I think I'm going to be safe. So I know in my own relationship with Phyllis, my wife, um, there's times in my faith journey I begin to kind of steer away from the faith. I begin to not have Christ as the center of my life, not have Christ as the center of our relationship. And she will notice um, there's certain things that show up in me when that happens um, because of you know, just the way that I act towards her, to the kids, maybe to my coworkers, And she's kind enough to bring that to my attention um, in a gentle way. 
And so that's the idea here is that not only do we have the opportunity to grow in Christ together, but we're able to steer each other back to God when we drift. That's the beauty of a Christian marriage. That's how it's different. So when Christ is the center of a marriage, two people are united in Christ, and the goal is to grow in that likeness during the duration of the marriage. Now when we say this, it's not about just growing in Christ, but it's actually being able to magnify him, to be able to exalt him, to be able to bring attention to him in the way that we live our, our lives. And I'll give you an example of that again. There are times where, um, unfortunately, I do something that's really not kind towards Phyllis, and she has a wonderful opportunity to forgive me and to accept me. And I get to learn more about God's forgiveness than the forgiveness I receive from her. I get to learn about unconditional acceptance from God in the way that she models that to me. I get to learn about God's mercy to me and see that in my own eyes through the dynamic of that relationship, that marriage relationship. And then in our case, we have kids. And kids see this stuff. Um, they see everything. Well, most things. We try to hide as much as, some, some of those things as best we can. But the idea here is that God planted marriage among people as a signpost to be able to see what's true about him. So not only do our marriages demonstrate to God to each other and God to maybe our kids, but they actually demonstrate it to those around us. Our marriage, when we go out to a Super Bowl party tonight, how we relate to our spouse is actually a signpost to other people. How we engage with each other, how we talk about each other, how we work together towards this common purpose and goal. And that is we're able to steer other people towards God. So God put us together to steer each other towards God and to be able to have other people to be able to steer to God. That is the primary purpose. That's the first way that Christian marriage is different. Now, the second way that Christian marriage is different really comes down to the kind of love you have in a Christian marriage. The kind of love in a normal marriage is characterized sometimes, and this week is a great example of that, right? It's going to feel warm. It's going to feel fuzzy. Kind of like uh, those barn owls that we saw. It's going to be based upon physical attraction. Sense of feeling close. Are those bad things? No, they're not things. They're just not foundational. They're not the kind of love that God desires for a Christian marriage to have in it. Now, ironically, the verse I want to bring our attention to is in 1 Peter. And again, it's one that's applicable to all relationships, but in particular marriage. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. We see the kind of love that, that Peter's encouraging us. It says, above all, love each other deeply. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. So what that's saying is, is that love in a marriage is one that's going to anticipate imperfection. It's going to be more of what I call a love despite of things, not because of things. It's not like I'm going to love Phyllis because of all these wonderful things about her, which we could go on for a while. But what it is is that there's times that, you know, that things don't go so well. And the question is, am I going to choose at that time to still love her? There's times where this love is actually not only one that forgives, but it's one that sacrifices. So when the relationship has the purpose of being Christ-centered, then it plays out in how we love each other. So let me talk a little about this sacrificial love, okay? Um, sacrificial love is really something that doesn't, like, you sometimes say, look, I take a bullet from my wife, right? But I wouldn't necessarily get up to get her a drink of water, right? She has two legs, the refrigerator's right over there, I don't know what's so hard about that, right? Like, 
There's other times where, look, like I would drive to, and she was pregnant to be able to go and get her whatever ice cream she needed at that point in time, right? But like, there's times where she wants a bowl of ice cream now. I'm like, look, it's just downstairs in the freezer, okay? So, uh, or even those of us who have children, right? There is the, okay, somebody's got to change the diaper, right? Like, well, I changed it last time. I changed it all week. Like, I've changed, you know, like, or many of us know, and I had this privilege the past couple of weeks, of the, I'm just not feeling so well. I'm a little under the weather, right? Like, I want to what? I want to be served. That's really what I want. So we go into this marriage with this concept of a purpose of being served and even a love that seeks to be served. And that's not sacrificial living. So fortunately, again, we have a great example in Christ. Paul talks about this. I'm going to bring our attention to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Here's the kicker. Not looking out for your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's sacrificial love in a Christian marriage. Me looking out for what's best for Phyllis. Me wanting what is in her interests. Me not having my own vain conceit or selfish ambition. It's really humility. Now, realistically, when I got married, I was really hoping to be served a little more than I, you know, like, I was hoping marriage would be this wonderful thing that would just meet all of my needs or meet some more of my needs, right? But that's not the way God designed it. And that's why it's so important for us to see the difference about being different. We can see why God designed an other-centered union in a me-centered world. If receiving love is our primary goal, we're going to dump our spouse as soon as the equity is kind of out of it. As soon as I'm getting less than I'm giving, I'm out. And realistically, most people can hang in there roughly about seven, eight years to the equation goes the other way and then they're done. That's what we see. But what I will tell you is if you look at God's word, the most secure and happiest marriages are those who look outward beyond their own often stifling self-absorption or their introspection or their coupledom to the service of God and to each other. And more importantly, not only to each other, but as we have in our banners here, to those who are in their families, in their neighborhoods, and at their workplaces. They're people who not only love each other sacrificially, but love many people sacrificially because of how they've been loved. So, Phil and I have this opportunity. Um, and obviously, there's a classic verse I just want to bring your attention to in Ephesians 5, 25. It's directed to husbands. And it says, husbands are to love their wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church by giving himself up for her. This isn't a love that is willing to go halfway, three-quarters of the way, seven-eighths, 80%, 95%. This is a love that gives all of itself, regardless of whether it receives anything in return. This is giving yourself up. These are the way that when we have this kind of love that we give, then our marriages can be a place of service, not just a place of self-satisfaction. So how is a Christian marriage different than a normal marriage? Christian marriage has a different kind of purpose than a normal marriage. A Christian marriage has a different kind of love than a normal marriage. And this is the one that I want to make sure you understand these, these things that are going to be rooted in this last one. 
Okay, Christian marriage has a different kind of power than a normal marriage. In a Christian marriage that's different, the presence of the Holy Spirit within each of us works inside of us, maturing each of us to that goal of Christ-likeness and becomes increasingly clear to him. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul is telling us as believers, he said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? So one of the wonderful things about a Christian marriage is we have a power source to be able to have that purpose and demonstrate this love. It isn't through our own, we don't conjure it up. We don't do the best we can. It's not best effort. It's really connected to the Holy Spirit who's inside of us. So how does this happen? How do we rely on this supernatural power where we're both controlled by the Spirit and not by the flesh? Well, if God's Spirit lives inside of us as a source of power, God's Spirit will actually give you ideas. He will actually say, hey, your wife looks tired. Maybe you should ask her, does she need a back rub? She looks worn out, or she looks like she could use help. Like the Holy Spirit will actually prompt you to be aware of something in someone else's life. Now at that moment, you will think, well, I'm pretty tired too. I'm not that interested. Maybe, maybe I should let her know I'm not feeling it. But the Holy Spirit not only gives you the awareness of what to do, but more importantly at that time, will change your heart's desires and give you a desire to go and do it. So it's not only an understanding of what to do, but it gives you the power and the strength to walk in that and to be able to follow through to do it. So what's great is we have this, for all of us as believers, in Galatians 5, 16 through 17, Paul reminds us how we are to walk by the Spirit, and when we walk by the Spirit, what will happen is we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, we're not going to take care of ourselves first. For the desire, fleshly desires is what's contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit is what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you're not to do whatever you want. Now, in a Christian marriage, that's different. Both the husband and wife must consider the partner's needs above their own, which requires a selflessness that's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Now, we realize we can't do it without our own power. The Holy Spirit shows me how to love and serve Phyllis in humility, and he provides me with this inner source of power. Let me, let me give you two examples from the scriptures of this. When I rely on my own power, I'm not able to, as Paul says, to regard Phyllis as more important than me. He says that in 2 Philippians 2, 3. I can't. I, I see myself as more important. And rightfully so sometimes, I think, right? <laughs> when I rely on my own power, I'm not able, as Peter encourages me in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, to treat Phyllis with respect and to be considerate of her. Because I want respect, right? That's, that's, what, that's what men want. We want to be respected. But when I rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm able to respect her and be considerate of her and her needs. Now, ironically, this probably plays out the most in problems. Now, many of you maybe don't have problems in your marriage. Phyllis and I happen to have a few. When they come up, that's when I see this power source in my life and how much I'm relying on it. So when a power problem comes up through the power of the Holy Spirit, I become more willing to take responsibility for my part of the problem and repent of it, confessing it to God and to Phyllis and turning around and heading in a different direction. So if you want to know what the power of the Holy Spirit looks like, think about the last problem you had and how you handled it. Think about the last set of problems you have. Think about the pattern of how you handle problems. The Holy Spirit will be the one to first show you the sin in your life and give you the desire to turn around and repent and make a U-turn and go in the other direction. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. And when I do that, it's amazing 
When one of us is willing to take responsibility first, the other one usually just goes right after it. It's amazing. But it's that willingness to be first, to take responsibility for our parts of the problems and to turn around and act differently. And then what's happening is in the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm able to both give forgiveness and receive forgiveness just as God has forgiven me. We are most like God in our relationships when we forgive one another. And that only happens in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in this power, we move forward to an honest, healing way in our marriage relationships. Later on in Galatians 5, verses 22 and following, Paul reminds us of the power the Holy Spirit gives us and some of the attributes that that shows up as. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against us things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified, have crucified their flesh with his passion and desire. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and not become conceited, provoking each other to envy. So what does this all mean? What is this idea of this Christian marriage that has a different purpose, that has a different love, that has a different power? How does this play out in our relationships? Maybe you're here today and you realize that you got married for self-centered reasons and you definitely did not get married for any of this Christ-centered stuff. This is really weird for you. Um, this is how actually all of us started out. We were self-centered and many of us even got married in that way and we ended up being two self-centered people attempting to get the most out of we can focused on what we can get out of relationships. But then God enters, and he transforms our lives. He transforms us from being self-centered to being Christ-centered. In being Christ-centered as a person, the idea is having Christ-centered marriage is new to you. Maybe today's the day that you can ask God to transform your life and have you turn around and recognize how you fall short of his design for you and your life and maybe your marriage. You ask God for forgiveness, and he is guaranteed to give it to you. You ask him to take over your life and turn from your own ways and start to follow his. You surrendered your life and asked God to replace your selfless desires for the ones that seek after him and also have this kind of purpose, love, and power that he has for you. Start to saturate yourself in his word. Surround yourself with others who are following after him. That's what our heart's desire is for you today, if you've never done that. For those of us who have done that, we have surrendered our lives to God. We begin to have his word permeate our heart and we're around this community of faith, what do we do with our marriages to make them more Christ-centered? Well, let me just remind you is that we cannot have God as a priority of our marriage if we don't have him the priority of our individual lives. So we start each day centered on him. We continue to have a higher purpose for our marriage and our close relationships. And one of the ways we do that is, Brian talked last week in Psalm 127, there's another verse that's similar to this that I want to highlight. It's from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4. It says, For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. So it's starting to recognize, Phyllis, God brought Phyllis and I together, and he's the one who built our marriage. Building it. He's the one of that. So when you think of marriage, so most of us have a wedding picture somewhere in our house, those of us who are married. Um, you, obviously, m- many of us who are married for a long time we don't look the same, obviously. Um, it just happens with time. But we have a picture, right, of you know, somewhere out there. You know, this is a, an example of that, right? But what I want to encourage you to do is uh, have somewhere, okay, that's a reminder that God is the builder of that relationship. Um, uh, I'm going to embarrass my friends. I didn't get permission for this as well, but I have one of my friends sitting here in the front row. And you walk into their front door, and you walk right there. They have a plaque on their wall and it talks about how God is building their marriage and their family. Okay? As a reminder to them. 
So find some. I'm not asking you to go over to Hobby Lobby and buy stuff. That's not what I'm trying to say. But find something, whether it's a sticky note, okay, whether it's something you find online, whatever it is, find something that reminds you that God is the one who brought you together, and he's the one who will keep you together. That's something that you can do to keep this idea of the purpose of marriage front and center. We see this in Psalm 34, verse 3, where the psalmist directs us to exalt the name of God together. We're to focus our marriage on exalting him and glorifying him together as a couple or as a set of close friends. We need to be reminded that any marriage or any close friendship doesn't need to be perfect, but it does need to be united, and it should be united in purpose. I appreciate how Pastor Alistair Begg puts this when he teaches about what's going on in marriage. He says that we are purposefully, wonderfully, gloriously, intimately, dutifully, legally, personally, unconditionally, and affectionately stuck to each other. Forever. We're united in purpose. For those of us who have Christ in our lives, how do we go about having more of that love that we talked about here today? Well, we see that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. It says, we love, why? Why do we love him? Because he first loved us. Phyllis and I, in our wedding, um, in our wedding ceremony, we, we read out loud 1 John chapter 4, most of the chapter. Um, ironically, if you, you, some of you watch your wedding videos earlier, like we butchered this passage. We were nervous. I, in particular, got all lost. So I think it's just much easier to focus on the key verse here. We love because he first loved us. This love of his is both our motive and our model. It's our motive because we've been so loved by him. And not only do we want to love him back as the first commandment that he gives and the greatest one, but we also want to love others, especially our spouses, which is the second greatest command. It's also our model because we are free to love others, especially our spouses, because we realize we've been fully loved by God. We offer our love to them voluntarily and sacrificially. This is how God demonstrated his love, his forgiveness, and his compassion towards us. So how does this all play out? Because we have up on the wall there, right? It's loving God, loving each other, and loving those around us. Too often we are living inward towards pleasing ourselves and not outward towards serving each other. This is the kind of love a Christian marriage has, self-sacrificing, not self-serving. So when the time comes to sacrifice, to lay down our lives for our spouses, to listen before we speak, to respond in love rather than in anger, to own our part of things, we're able to know that we can do that because we're reflecting the love that Christ first had for us. So now I want to go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? Said that it is good, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. Now people look at this verse and um, as we come to a close, they think that they feel sorry for Adam. Like all the animals have somebody and he doesn't have anybody. I understand that that's part of it, but I think we're missing another part, okay? I agree with a few others who think that his loneliness is not the only challenge he had, but actually the challenge he had is God gave him a, a bunch of work to do. Name animals, take care of the garden, and do a whole bunch of things. And he said, he needs what? Help, right? He needs a helper, right? Not, and a helper, not in the dark, side by side, took him from his side. He didn't take him from his head that he would kind of direct him around. He didn't take him to his feet to be a slave. He took him from the side. Took her from the side to be able to make her as a helpmate for him. And that's what God designed us. He designed us to be together in marriages, to be together in communities of faith, to work together to bring him glory. 
So I want to go back to those animals again. I mentioned the beaver and the eagle. The beaver, I just want the beaver to be a reminder for us this week. They mate for life. They only seek out a new partner when one would pass away. They are death to do part with their commitment. But in addition to their commitment, how do we describe beavers? Tell me some things, adjectives we use about beavers. Busy beaver, eager beaver, and they're, they're making, they're always building something, right? They're, they're busy all day long. And if we are eager in our relationship with our wives or our spouses, if we're busy with them doing things, and more importantly, constructive things, it's amazing the way that our relationship can blossom and it can be better. And we'll end with our eagles. We can't, we can't finish without talking about the eagles today, okay? They too mate for life. But what's interesting is, is they too work together to stay together. According to researchers, they do so by nest building as the process to solidify the bond between them. They continuously add to the structure so that after many years, it becomes this gargantuan thing that stands as a symbol of their unity and fidelity. And that's the kind of relationship we want to have here in our church about the marriages and the close friendships that we have years together to show this huge nest that we've worked together to build. And lastly, I just want to encourage you when we talk about eagles, just to get a little more mileage out of this, okay? God created us with an overwhelming desire to soar. Our desire to develop and use every ounce of our potential, he's put in us. He's designed us to have tremendous productivity, and it says in his scriptures to mount up with wings like eagles, dreaming of what we can do with that potential. That potential is true for our relationships. Pastor Brian talked about it last week. He's going to talk about it these coming weeks. And we look forward to that. Let's pray. So God, please help us to prioritize you and our marriages and our close relationships. Please help us to love each other as you have first loved us. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit that gives us the desire and the discipline to demonstrate sacrificial love in our thoughts and actions. As we do so, we reflect you and bring glory to you, which is our purpose in these relationships. Amen.